0: You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. Pardon the interruption, but just a quick message from me to let you know about the leadership survey we have just placed on the website. Here at The Great Coaches, we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, but we have gone back to the transcripts of the more than 200 great coaches we've interviewed to identify their key leadership traits. We've then created a survey of 20 questions to help you compare your leadership style to theirs. It's free, only takes a few minutes to complete, and should help you find areas of relative strength and weakness. If you'd like to know more, check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
1: Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there.
3: This is a chance, of When you can understand the person, you can then
1: work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role you and do it to the best of
2: your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
0: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight.
2: Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey, and you're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of elite sport by interviewing great coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is rugby's Heineke Meyer. Heineke is a South African-based rugby coach He started his coaching career in 1988 and by 1998 was head coach for the Southwestern District's Eagles. From 2000 until 2007, he coached the Blue Bulls and in that time, the team won the South African Championship four times. He also coached the South African Base Bulls in the Super Rugby Competition, at that time played between New Zealand, South African and Australian-based teams and in 2007, led his beloved Bulls to a championship victory. In 2012, he was appointed head coach of the South African national rugby team, the Springboks, leading them to a third place in the 2015 Rugby World Cup. He has recently published his second book, My Notes on Leadership and Life. Heineke is a passionate, honest, and master motivator. His ability to encourage his team to, in his words, go one more round is legendary his energy is infectious and he conveys it through the use of storytelling and metaphor to distill the essence of his message in a powerful way which you will hear on multiple occasions in this interview there are many however the key highlights for me were his belief that as a coach you're like a light switch in that if the team sees you being positive in difficult situations then they will have the energy and the belief to follow how As a leader, you must be challenged to grow, so you should embrace the pressure when you're in a difficult situation, and his belief that at the end of the day, a lot of people are so poor because all they have is money, as they've neglected the fulfillment that comes from being a servant leader. This really was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Paul and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Hey Meyer, good morning, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast.
3: No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a big honor to be on your podcast.
1: I love chatting a bit of rugby with my friend Jim, so we're keen to talk to you today. But something really simple to begin, Hanika, where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today?
3: I've just stopped coaching in France and then decided to take a sabbatical. COVID didn't help out a few offers overseas, but COVID's been good for me. I always believe in the positive. You always have to get something positive out of life. So i spent a lot of time with my family, which I haven't had the opportunity through through the years. It's been actually great just having time. And I wrote a book. I always wanted to make a difference. That's why I coach. So I wrote a book just about life lessons, and you know it's not about making sales. The book's done really, really well, based out in South Africa. And I just always wanted to coach to make a difference. You know that's that's why I've coached. And I think that's that's a secret probably of the of the best coaches in the world. It's not about you. It's about going out there and making a difference.
1: Well, that book is, is winging its way to me here in Prague as we speak, so I'll be looking forward to reading it when it comes. But Heineke, no, I might, thank you very much. I might start actually by just going back over some of the great coaches that you've had first-hand experience with, Phil Pretorius, Alan Solomons, of course, Rassi Erasmus, and so I wanted to start by asking, what is it you think the great coaches do differently?
3: I think the question I've always asked if I work with young coaches, I always ask, is rugby, is it a science or is it the art? And most of the guys will tell you it's probably a science, especially if they're more technical. And some of the guys, especially the older coaches, which I respect, the philosopher coach, will say it's an art. But I believe that rugby is both a science and an art. You can be technical, very astute, and you can be great on the technical side, but not good on the human side. And at the end of the day, you work with humans. That's the most important thing. So what I've learned and what I've learned from the great coaches and I'm still learning is that I think the guys that that really makes a difference is that guys that can get the balance between the art and the science of it. If you're over technical and and you're not good with people, you're never going to be successful in the long run. You'll have short stints, especially probably World Cups where you just have a team for six, seven weeks. But if you look at the top coaches that's been successful over years, especially one team, because that gets more difficult because you work with them every day, you have to find the art because you work with people and you have to know what ticks, you know, what make people tick. So I did study and research all my players. I did tests on them. I did all different type of brain tests. There's a thing in, in coaching where they say, you have to be, you have to keep, do the same things with every single player and treat them the same. And I don't believe in that. Some guys you need to push. Some guys you need to stand back and just leave them. Some guys like motivational stories. Some guys you just, you just leave them at half time. So I did a lot of research about human behavior. And I think the great coaches know what buttons to tick, And like I say, to combine the size and, science and the art, and that's coaching, you know, it's, you can't tell people what to do. You sometimes you have to set the example and sometimes you need to force them. And sometimes, you know, just to stand back. So I just think it's a, at the end, it's, it's, I, I tend more to think it's an art and which buttons to push. And I think you need to be humble because you don't know everything and you're only as good as your assistants. In my book, in the last chapter, I say, if you look at the Lone Ranger, wasn't alone. It was one of my favorite characters when I was a kid. Tarzan wasn't alone. And a guy like Edmund Hillary was the first guy to climb Mount Everest. But Tenzing Norway was with him all the way, and he only got credit later. So I think the great coaches know their weaknesses. And you're only as good as your management team and you're only as good as your players. Not one coach is as good that can make such a big difference where you're the Lone Ranger. You have to have quality people and you have to have quality leaders in your team and you have to have, unfortunately, a quality team. For me, the biggest thing is coaches that diff- definitely makes a difference. You can win a lot of trophies, but trophies are just a piece of tin. I know the spectators and, and, and the guys that follow it don't think so. But as a coach, I truly believe the great coaches have made a difference somewhere. If, if uniting the country or just making a difference in people's lives. And I think that's the great coaches. You're there to serve serve, and it's serving leadership. Uh, I think that's the big difference. And, and players know that. They know if you're in there for yourself. They know if you want the limelight. I believe a coach needs to be out of the limelight. I don't like being in a shot when we want trophies because it's about the players. You're there to serve. And then if you see a lot of great players, they struggle to, to make it as a coach because everything's been done for them. They were a centre of attraction. Suddenly, if you're a coach, I have to give. And a lot of players can't make that distinction. And if you look at a lot of the great coaches, which I respect and coach against, most of them come from a teaching background because they're there to serve. It's serving leadership. And a lot of them, we coach in the amateur days where... We just did it for the love of it so you have to really enjoy what you're doing and the players will feed on that and you have to be able to inspire people i think it's very very important to inspire people that's maybe the, the difficulty and i usually say the coach is that you're the leader and you're the light switch the most difficult thing for me was after a loss the players follow the back of the leader so you have to get back you have to pick up your chin and you have to when you go in there you're the light switch so if the player sees you positive you're going to fight back for one more round. They will. They will follow. So you have to be a great leader as well. I believe.
1: You studied psychology at university. Based on the experience you have now, what do you wish they would have taught you at university?
3: You know, not just university. I always wanted to be, and I don't like talking about myself. More about my teams. I stood up as a youngster and said, "I want to. I want to coach my country." They said, "You must tell him what you want to do one day." And I said, "I want to marry my wife, which was the prettiest girl in the school," and they laughed probably more than. Being the Springbok coach when i said i want to marry my wife so i think people we're so used to school and university you know, they, they, they're stealing your dreams and wherever i've gone school they told me you're crazy i was in the wrong school and i say this with all due respect to our people out there and so they always told me listen you're crazy you'll never make it when i went to university they told me that stop worrying about rugby it was amateur then and they said rugby won't bring you anywhere focus on your studies but I just stayed two more years on university just to – I was involved with the rugby team, the little hostel team, and I was involved with the university – on the university management side, and I learned a lot about management, just to be involved with rugby. And I said, listen, rugby will bring you nowhere. Focus on your studies. So I was inducted later in the Hall of Fame of university, and my opening speech was, listen, you told me rugby is going to bring me nowhere, and now I'm back at university. And I'm not here for academics. Definitely not. So I think we all over my life, the thing that I would teach people the children out there is that people always steal dreams and no dream is big enough i mean if you look like elon musk now and put a rocket on, on on mars people laughed at him and all those guys now the scientists who said was impossible are working for him neil armstrong the first guy that went to first first guy to walk on the moon i mean people say set realistic goals but i mean what's what's more unrealistic than saying you want to go to the moon so i'm a big believer and i write it in my book as well for especially for the kids out there you can be whatever you want to be. It's so easy actually. You just have to have a plan. And 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 I, I, I mentioned seven steps in my book to get there. And I was from the wrong school, the wrong I didn't play rugby. I was very average. In South Africa, you have to coach at the highest level. If you wanna you have to be professor in university or in those days, general in the army, or you have to be an ex Springbok. And I was nowhere. And I wanna tell this story, not just tell you how great I am. I'm going to tell you the story just to tell you how everything is possible. In 1995, I was a schoolboy coach and rugby was amateur then. And it just didn't professional. There was an insurance company called Sunlam in South Africa. that went around and you can pay like, I don't know, remember the amount. And you can pay and you can go to the 99 World Cup. And uh, I didn't have money as a teacher then. I only studied for two, uh, teach for two years just to, just to be involved in rugby and, and to just to see how it goes and to help you with the presentation skills. So, in 1995, I watched the World Cup, rugby turned professional. I said to my friend, I'm going to be at that World Cup. But I didn't have the money to pay that insurance policy. I said, But I don't care, I'm going to be there. So, four years later, from being a schoolboy coach, I was 32 years old. I was Nick Mallett's forwards coach at that World Cup. And most of the players were older than me. So, I'm not telling you this to try and say how great I am. I'm telling you this wrong school. Everybody at university told me rugby is going to bring you nowhere. I went to Woolworth, they told me rugby is going to bring you nowhere. But you can't let people steal your dreams. And that's why I'm going to teach young people out there. I know there's a lot of youngsters listening to you. Everything is possible. And surround you with people that will support you. There's always five people that tell you why you can't make it. i rather stick with one guy and tell me why I can make it. And I say to my players and to young coaches, it's like the Bumblebee. We had an award with the Springboks and all my teams. I call it the Bumblebee Award. And that's the person that does the most for the team. Not the guy that scores the best try, but the guy that does something for the team in our culture. You know, playing with the injury or playing out of position or whatsoever. And the reason it's called the bumblebee is because the bumblebee is scientifically, it's impossible for the bumblebee to fly. They say his body is too big, his wings are too small, and the bumblebee can fly at heights where people can't get oxygen, at Everest heights. But the bumblebee is flying because nobody told the bumblebee is impossible. So what I wish to school at and university and wherever is that people will follow kids to follow their dreams and not tell them why they can't do it.
1: I've heard you talk about the importance of enjoying what you do, but also that pressure can be a positive thing if it strengthens you. So I wanted to ask, what are the other values that are central to your coaching philosophy?
3: I like stories like you've seen, so people remember stories. But I, I read about Andrew Carnegie in the 1950s. He had 100 millionaires in those days working for you. And they asked him, what's the secret of your success? And he said, you know what? People are like the mining industry. He was a steel magnate and he was in the mining industry. And he said, people are the mining industry. You can take layers and layers and layers of people, but somewhere in there, you will get a gold nugget. Same as mining. You take layers and layers and layers of rubble and dirt and dust, and you get a a gold nugget. And if you can nurture that, you'll be successful. So my coaching philosophy is I was in the Army, and I was a PTI instructor. Just after I've studied, we had to go to the Army. And a lot of the younger guys, I was a little older. A lot of the younger guys, 18, 19 years old, I was 23, 24, a little bit more mature. They couldn't wait to get into the new recruits and kill them and just let them run and one of the generals said something that always resonated with me and i always remember he said you know what you're working with somebody else's kid and those days we were young but then later on i had three boys so my coaching philosophy is, is very simple players are not always going to love you they're not always going to like you obviously the guys you pick are going to like you more but my coaching philosophy is more that you have to handle players the way you want people to handle your kids I'm very close to my boys. I don't want them. I want people to be hard on them, but honest. I want them to, be, to look after them medically, look after their health. Don't press them into situations they're not ready. Don't inject them with steroids and things that can, ha- can harm them later. So I've made a lot of mistakes as a coach. You make a lot of mistakes and you learn. But one thing I can look in the mirror, I've always handled players the way that I want somebody to handle my kids. And sometimes players were crossed because I didn't push them into games early when they were, I thought they were going to get injured. And sometimes I dropped them just to get them back on track. But I think thats you have to have a coaching philosophy as a young coach and as a leader. Because if you stand for nothing, you're going to fall for everything. It's a very simple philosophy for me, but uh, I believe in that. And I remember just before the World Cup, when John de Villiers torn his knee for the fourth time, I actually cried with him because my son had two knee ops just before that. And only a parent now what it takes to take him to hospital, to take him to Fiji. His dream was gone for playing for his school and for his province. So, you, know, you have to have a philosophy, and my philosophy is simple, you know, you, you have to treat players the same that you want to be treated, and you have to love what you do. There's no use, you coach, and you don't love it, because it's uh, a job, right? We shouldn't be a job. We coach an amateur days just because you enjoy it, and I want to make a difference, like Kanigi said. So, if people really know you care, they don't play for the country, they don't play for the jersey. We always say they play for the jersey, they play for the coach. And if they know you care about them, they will put their bodies on the line. If they know you're only in there for yourself and for the limelight and for the press, sooner or later they're going, to, they're going to catch you out and you won't be successful. So you have to serve, and, and that's what I believe in. You have to really serve and, and help people to make their dreams come true.
1: I'd like to just go back a little bit to early in your coaching career. You talked about going very quickly to helping out the Springboks, but you actually started head coaching in 1988. And 10 years later, you are coaching in the South African National Competition, the Curry Cup. But what's interesting is that in 2000 you go on this incredible run with the Blue Bulls. In your 7 years with them, you win the national championship four times. I wanted to ask how did you keep that team motivated and moving forward without a sense of entitlement?
3: Yeah, first of all, like I said, 95 I was a schoolboy coach and 99 it happened actually too quickly. I was a, I was a national coach, assistant coach one of the best coaches ever for Nick Mallett and Solomon's was the assistant. So I've been I've been around I think the most important thing is to have a vision for the team. And the bigger the vision, the the bigger the energy. Uh, you have to have a vision that inspires people. And I always say to to young coaches, I like working with young coaches. It's like a magnifying glass. If I take a magnifying glass and and I don't have an exact exact set vision, there's no energy. you know we play this style, we do this style, we want to st- we stand for this, this is our culture and you change every second day. If you've got a set 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 vision, written in stone so everybody knows exactly what you have what they want to achieve and everybody's focused in the same same direction. you focus with a magnifying glass, you put it on one spot, everybody's focus. you have enough energy to start a, a fire that can destroy the, you know everything. The, the difficulty of coaching is, I always say this to young coaches that if you look at human behavior and in our days at school we took photos and two weeks later you get the photo back and then you can say if you want to buy it or not, the first person you look at when you get the photos back is yourself. I don't know if that's true, but with most of the people I know, that's true. Secondly, you look at the most beautiful girl in the class. And then thirdly, you look at your friends. So what I'm trying to get to is the, 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 the difficulty of coaching is you have to be able to unite a team behind your vision, but they have, to, buy, that they have to, to link in with their vision. So I think I was quite good. I got young players in that nobody else wanted. Nobody actually rated them because, and the Bulls lost every single game. So nobody wanted to come to the Bulls. So I was good selling my vision and then let the players buy into my vision. And they know if they buy into the team's vision, they're always going to be successful. And I was fortunate enough to coach guys like Brian Abana, Bucky's Goethe, Victor Matfield. And a lot of these guys weren't first choices at their unions and nobody wanted them. And they became superstars. So the other thing that's very important, once they're behind the vision, is work ethic. You have to have a work ethic. You look at a guy like Mornay Stein. When I recruited him, he didn't even kick first-choice kicker for his school. And I got Johnny Wilkinson's kicking coach, Dave Allred, in, which is brilliant. I remember when Mornay was 18, 19, we went on two, and he missed like eight kicks right in front of the of goal. He was never even a kicker. And then now, you know, against the British Isles Lions in, in the previous ones in Africa, he kicked a winning goal, and he's one of the best kickers in the world. So you have to have a work ethic. But if the vision is not big enough, guys won't work. And then the culture, I believe that nobody is is, is bigger than the team and they have to buy into division. And if they get complacent, they know youngsters will come in. You can't stick with the same team. If if they get complacent, they know you'll pick somebody else. And I think the biggest thing as a leader, and this is very important, I think, as a leader and a coach, you have to set the example. And it's all about standards. Wherever I made mistakes was when I dropped my standards. And I always tell this to coaches that it's like the flea circus. If you take the flea circus, more tongue-in-cheek, but you have this bottle and you go there and, the, and the, the little fleas will jump up and down, but they won't even if the bottle is open, they won't jump out. So if you ask the trainer, listen, it's impossible. Why don't the fleas jump out? He says it's quite, quite simple. When they're small, you close the lid and they jump and they jump and they jump and they bump their heads. And then later you take off the lid and they're not going to jump out because that's their standard. So I think from complacency as a leader, you have to raise the bar. And if a guy turns short once in a session, that's going to be a habit. And where I made mistakes, I didn't get involved. And I didn't, at that moment, change the behavior. Because once it becomes a behavior, it's, you're not going to change. It's going to happen in the games as well. But I think if the vision is, is big enough, you don't have to push people. The vision pulls people. And they wanted to be the best team in the world. That was our vision. And everybody laughed at us. We lost 11 out of 11 the first year. I was fired, came back. Same vision hasn't changed. And when we won the Super Rugby in 2007, 9, and, and 10, I think that team, and it's not me, it's the team, was the best team in the world. So people will laugh at you, but if the vision is there, you have work ethic, you believe in your vision, you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to have setbacks, definitely I'm big on mental toughness. And then, you, and then the last thing is you can't do it alone, and that's the seven steps in my book. You'll be successful.
1: Tell us about those seven steps.
3: Yeah, it's very simplistic, and I wanted to write a very simplistic book. The first thing I said was, you have to have a vision. Everything started for me with a vision. And, you know, 97% of people don't write down the vision. 3% of people in the world that have done this in America, research, 3% write down their vision. And that 3% earn more than the 97% put together. So you have to write it down because when the pressure comes on, you change every week. So just about vision, I can have a whole talk with you just about a vision. It must be big enough, like I wanted to coach my country. Everybody loved. Then you have to believe in your vision, okay? So I told him about when we had to beat the Reds by an Eddie Jones coach. and he's a brilliant coach. We had to beat them by seventy-six points, which is impossible. And how we broke it down, and we beat them ninety-two-three, which is still a record. But everybody said it's impossible. So you have to believe in your vision because if you don't believe in your vision, it's no use you do it. The third thing is that which I believe you have to have the willpower, because and they are use the pain and pleasure principle. So say for example. You don't change a habit. It's very difficult to change a habit. So say I love hamburgers. If I see hamburgers as great and it's saucy and it's, I really enjoy it, I'm never going to change the, the habit. But if I see it, listen, it's gonna, I'm going to get pain. It's going to bloat me. I'm going to get heart attacks. If I'm overweight, I'm not going to see my grandchildren. Then it's gonna, I'm going to associate that with pain. And that's why, especially for young coaches, I never, ever, ever, if a guy with fitness, punish a guy with fitness. Because then fitness for them is, is a punishment. They need to see fitness as a pleasure, where it's great to do fitness. We're gonna win games in the last minute. Then they will do fitness. I never punish your fitness. The fourth thing I believe then is work ethic. You only have to work, and that's that team that was so successful. You only have to work half a day. You can decide if it's the first 12 hours or the next 12 hours, because if you don't work, somebody else is gonna work and they're gonna beat you. And then the third thing is, is mental toughness. And I know there's a question coming. I'm very big on mental toughness. Mental toughness for me is like coal or charcoal. That doesn't mean anything. You can buy it for next to nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But if you put it under pressure for years and years and years and years and millions of years, you get diamonds. So I like players that can handle the pressure, but once they're under pressure, they sound like diamonds. So you are going to get setbacks, especially now with COVID. Every successful person is going to have setbacks. I was fired a few times. I've lost 11 out of 11, a lot of lows. But you have to come back and fight one more round. And then point six, you have to enjoy what you're doing. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, you'll never be successful. So I really believe that coaching for me wasn't a job. I, I, would, I would go in at five and stay there till late because I really enjoy what I did and I enjoy people. And then the last thing, like I said, you can't do it alone. There's no overnight success where people don't alone. You need people around you and it, it's about teamwork. Even if it's just your parents taking you to practice or when you're injured. And, and I had brilliant assistants. I had brilliant people backing me. So it's very simplistic points but it's worked for me and I've helped a lot of people where it worked for them as well. It's it's a simplistic stuff we don't get right as leaders. If you just take people, we look at tables and chairs and things and that's on our um, financial statement, that's an asset, but that's not an asset. People is On the financial statement, people is is a liability because you have to pay them, but it should be different. People should be your asset. And as a leader, like I said to you, if you care about people, it will come back. And leaders look at the horizon where managers look at the bottom line. So we need more leaders, I think, in the world, and every single guy out there is a leader. We always think leaders are the successful people. No, leaders are, if you look at the Kennedys, their mother raised them, and she thought she make a difference in the world by raising leaders, and she was a leader. So the normal guy out there in the street is a leader in his own community or his own household, and we need more people like that. So I'm very big on leadership, and I think everybody in one stage is a leader, but you have to care for people, and you have to make a difference in people's lives.
1: Hi everyone, I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So Eric, what skills do you think leaders need to develop today to impact tomorrow? I think tomorrow is going to be digital. So the skills that we
3: need in leaders is one, strategy so that they can see the outside world and understand all the changes that are playing out. But two, a people skills so they can work with people's inside
1: world motivate them to be able to see the issues that matter and find ways through so that we solve those problems together. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you and transform the way you think.
0: Introducing WonderSuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
1: You were named the South African national coach. You led the team to the 2015 Rugby World Cup. In the opening game of the competition, you lose to Japan. After the game, you make a public apology, and I've watched it. And when I look at it, I see someone who is carrying the weight of the nation on their shoulders. And I wanted to talk to you about expectations. And now when you talk to other coaches about dealing with the pressure of expectation, what do you say to them?
3: If I may tell you a story, I'm going to tell this and then I'm going to go to the Japan game because everybody asks me about that game. I've answered that a hundred of times. But the pressure is like this and and it's a mindset. i always tell the story to my young players. When they go out there and play their first game, I'll tell them this story and it's probably a well-known story. So apologies if you heard it before. But a little kid came to his father and said, listen, he's got pressure at school. He doesn't fit in, he's struggling. You can use any example." So the father went, and I've done this with my teams. I've, I've done it really as a, as a coaching method and as a, as a team talk with my teams, especially youngsters all with a young team. So you take a, three glasses with boiling water. The first one you put in a carrot, the second one you put in an egg, and the third one you put in coffee beans. And then you ask the kid, listen what happens, or the team. And then the first thing is, carrot goes in, it's very tough. After a few hours in boiling water, it goes soft. Egg goes in, it's soft. After a few hours, it goes tough. And coffee stays coffee. So then you ask them, what do they see? And this is maybe an example for young players or young coaches. So I always say, I don't players where they where they're hard. And when they go under pressure, they get soft. A lot of players, I can't pick them if they're tough and they're tough-minded and they, and they, and they have the appearance of being tough, which is not true. But they go soft under pressure, which is the boiling water. Secondly, you get guys that soft, but once the pressure comes to them, they go tough. They go hard like an egg. And the third thing, which I think is important for coaches or whoever, is that in the first instances, the hot water, which is the pressure, changed the, 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 the carrot and changed the egg. But where coffee is different, they, it uses the hot water, and it became coffee. It didn't change. And it gave off a great aroma, and it's great to drink. made a huge difference. So what I'm trying to say is you have to embrace the pressure. So don't let the pressure get you. Don't get hot and give away penalties. Go, don't go soft and don't want to play. You have to embrace the pressure. That's why I've been coaching, and that's why I've been training for so long. So always young players, I say, don't feel the pressure. You have to be like the coffee. You change the pressure to your the way you want it. Embrace the pressure. You've trained so hard to be here today. Go out there and enjoy it. Because a lot of kids will give whatever to play in front of 50,000 people and to be cheered on and get the ball in their hands. And that was their dreams. So for young coaches there and, and, and people under pressure, you have to embrace pressure. Because what's the use of not being under pressure? Then you can just coach at the – and you can play – against teams where you win every single game by 100 points there's no challenge in that so you have to be challenged to grow so i like to embrace the pressure and there's nothing i battled uh, against a lot of countries or my teams and it, for me it was nothing more i never felt more alive than facing the hawker. and i've lost a lot of those games but for me it was unbelievable so that's why i said you have to enjoy what you're doing embrace the pressure and that's why you coach if you can't handle the pressure, then you're going to go soft or hard and you're not going to, you're not going to last. So you have to have a mindset change and the more the pressure, you have to enjoy it. And that's why, that's why we coach. If there's no pressure in your life, you stand up every day, it's just a happy girl, happy You'll never, you never grow as a person. And Japan especially, maybe example or give advice to other coaches. The biggest mistake I made, and first of all, as a leader, you take full responsibility, even if it's not your fault, because you're the leader. And then secondly, all the biggest mistakes I've made as a leader, as a coach, is that I didn't trust my gut. When you don't trust your gut, because you've gone through so many places where you were or incidents where you were successful and a lot where you don't successful, and you learn from that. And then you get into the situation and you listen to other people and don't trust your gut. If I look at my whole career, even as a young coach, you know as a leader what's right and wrong. You know what's going to work, and then you listen to other people. And then so stay authentic. Leadership, don't try to be somebody else. Everybody's different. You get soft-spoken guys like Steve Hansen that doesn't show emotion. I'm crazy. I go ballistic, which I don't believe is right because people shouldn't focus on me. They should focus on the team. I don't like that, and I'll talk about that later. I believe you have, you should be out of the limelight. And when it happened was at Loftus, I had one-way mirror. People couldn't see me, and I was always scared that the Springboks they will see how crazy I go because I used to coach from an early age on the stands. It's almost like a soccer coach and very passionate. And then we played Australia, and usually when the camera is this side, I will sit on the other side the day before. You do like a team run, captain's run, and then I always sit on the opposite side. But that day, when we've never beat Australia in Brisbane. Very difficult to beat them there. We scored four tries, and the first time we won there. So I went ballistic, but I didn't realize the camera was in in the ceiling. I didn't see the small cameras in the ceiling, and they showed me. And my wife said, listen, you're in front of all the newspapers. You you went crazy, and I, I felt so embarrassed. And then a lot of New Zealanders and guys said, we like your passion. So I believe that it shouldn't be on me, it should be on the team. But again, you shouldn't follow anyone as a leader. Every single guy is different and it's different, different ways of leadership. You get very guys that's outspoken, soft guys. It's all about example, but stay true to yourself. And the mistakes I made is when I'm not true to myself and, and don't trust my intuition. And that Japan game, I'm very proud. It kept me humble. It learned me a big life lesson. And we came back and lost by two points against the best all-black team ever. And that team went on. They said, you can't win a World Cup if you lose one game. They've lost against New Zealand in the 99 World Cup. Most of those kids played the previous one when they were young. They've learned from that and won the World Cup after they've lost against New Zealand. So for me, there's no, obviously you carried the hopes uh, of the nation. And uh, I apologize for that. And I think you must do that as a leader because most guys don't take responsibility, especially politicians. But uh, you have to learn from that and, and move on. And I was very proud of the way we fought back. And that's life. Especially in these COVID times, you have to go there and, and fight one more round like a boxer, and keep on fighting. And, and that's life.
1: And I love looking at the video and the footage of your emotions. I think it's unreal.
3: Oh, I
1: love it. <laughs> I I'm get gonna... so
3: embarrassed. I probably I get embarrassed. I don't like. I said I don't believe it should focus on me. No. But uh, I just enjoy what I do so much and. I get so involved in the game and the players, and uh, it's crazy. But yeah, that's that's who I am. And like I said, I get embarrassed. I don't think they should they should fool me. They should they should fool the team. Well, you talked
1: about your three sons yeah. in the opening, and your career has had some soaring highs and also some lows. But through it all, you're always animated. You you you're always emotionally engaged with the team. And I think that emotional engagement is so much at the heart of your coaching style. But what I wanted to ask you was. When you speak to your three sons about dealing with the highs and lows of leadership, what advice do you give them?
3: I'm very proud of my boys, and they're all different. They're totally, totally different, and it's so strange because it's more or less the same upbringing and the same values, but they're totally different. So leadership for me is people won't remember what you say, but they remember how did you say it. And first thing I I try to teach my boys is they have to be authentic to themselves, which I just said. And I actually wrote the book for them. So all seven principles is, is part of your life. You are going to get setbacks. You have to have a work ethic, all these things I mentioned. But like I said, for leaders, you have, you have to be true to yourself and they totally different. I believe you have to be humble because at the end of the day, I've seen in COVID now as well. I had COVID and my son and, and, and my wife had COVID. I've just seen again, all the other things is not important. If you really take everything away and, and cut back to the bone and like, like almost like finding the nugget, at the end of the day, A lot of people are so poor, all they have is money. And I've met the richest people in the world, and it was so sad sometimes. A lot of these people have no friends. Their family doesn't want to see them. Their kids have written them off, and they're rich, and people think they're successful. And don't get me wrong. There's very great, successful people that's very rich. I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich. I'm just saying is what I've learned again in COVID is at the end, the only thing that counts is your relationships, relationship to your family, your relationship with whoever, your friends, because COVID just showed us again. All the other things, you're only here for a short time. And you only live once, but if you play it right, once is, a, once is enough. So for my kids, you know, I don't want to go out there and make a difference. And serving leadership, I believe we need more serving leadership. And especially now, you know, with, with I'm amazed. With, I've never been on Instagram and, and Facebook because obviously I want to get out of the media. I never want to get in the media. Now, my sons have showed me, and it was so tough on my sons because if you lose a game, everybody's single kid they know climbs into them. It's very tough on your family. And I just said to them, listen, stay true to yourself. The people are always wrong. People that criticize and whatever, you have to be true to yourself. And and especially for the youngest kids out there, they look at how many likes they get and and, and feel embarrassed they don't have likes, and that's so wrong. At the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself. It's not about other people. If you live close to your values, what you like to do in life, don't worry what other people say because if you look at most of the people, if you look at uh, Einstein, which was a genius, he actually didn't go into school, and they sent him home, and they wrote a letter to his mother. This is a true story. They wrote the myth and said, "Listen, he's, he will never adapt at school. This guy is not clever enough." And when he died, he actually saw the letter, and he couldn't believe his mother told him, "Listen, they say you're too clever. You can't, shouldn't stay in school. You must homeschool because you're too clever. You don't fit in." So for me, it's, I truly believe it's it's for me it's so. It's so sad. There's so many people with so much talent out there, but they don't follow their dreams. And I was the same because my youngest son wants to do different things. He wants to to do financial services and he wants to box and all these strange things. And I said to him, are you crazy? And then I realized, Eneke, you write in your book, don't steal somebody else's dream because everybody wants to tell me why I shouldn't coach. And I've done exactly the same. So true leadership is really, if you can inspire people to follow their dreams, be themselves, be authentic, you're going to get setbacks, but work through that. Everybody gets setbacks. I think that's true leadership. So my boys, I just want to be happy, enjoy what you do, and always fight one more round. And, and, and why I say fight one more round, I, I write this in the book, is that I watch an interview with Muhammad Ali, actually a fight against Sonny Liston, and nobody gave Ali a chance. He was a young fighter, and Sonny Liston was an animal. He was an unbelievable, he was an unbelievable fighter, was in jail. People thought this guy is invincible. So Ali told the whole world, obviously being Ali, you know, I'm going to beat this guy. And then in the fifth round, Ollie wanted to quit because the Sonny Liston camp put winter green, which is deep it on the on their glass and hit Ollie in the eye and he couldn't see. And he wanted to quit because this is unfair play and he couldn't see and he wanted to show the world this is unfair, but he would lost the belt. So Angelo Dandy's trainer pushed him in and said, go out then fight one more round, you don't quit. He had a great fifth round and in the sixth round, he had a great sixth round In the seventh round, the imaginable happened. Sonny Liston stood up and they threw in the towel. Ali was the world champion. He told them, I told you I'm going to beat the world. So as a youngster, as a leader out there, when people don't believe in your dreams, they'd write you off. And just especially in COVID, if I can just give one message in COVID, is that you are going to get setbacks. And my whole message is go and fight one more round. Like Ali did. He, he could have quit so easily. And a lot of businesses and a lot of people emotionally is under huge pressure. Even myself, you know, I haven't coached for a while, but we have to go out there and fight one more round. And that's the mental toughness. So I really teach my children that you are going to get setbacks. People's not going to like you. They're going to criticize you, whatever your father did. They're going to criticize your dreams. People's going to steal your dreams, which I sometimes want to do with my kids, which is so wrong. And now I just want to support them. Whatever they want to do and believe in and their values are, just go for it. Because like I said, the bumblebee, nobody's thoughts can fly, but it's, it's still flying to this day. So yeah, I try to be an example of them, but I don't always get it right. But they have their own lives and they must be, just be happy and I will be happy.
1: Annika, you've spoken yeah. about your desire to help unite South Africa through rugby. So I wanted to finish by asking you, what's the legacy you hope to leave one day as a coach?
3: I tell you, at one stage, I felt I didn't make a difference because you give so much you know, of yourself as a coach, if you're the right coach, and you're unselfish, and it's serving leadership. I saw most of the players more than I saw my own kids. And I talk about work ethic, and you have to pay a price. Sometimes, like my my, my middle son, Aineke, in his first year, it was World Cup, and I was at the Stormers, and, and it was Championship. I only saw him for 30 days. Sometimes it's tough being a leader and, and being in business or wherever if you, if you chase your dreams, and you sometimes pay a price. And I sometimes felt I didn't make a difference. But suddenly now, a lot of the players I coach is getting older now, and a lot of them phoned me for advice. And a lot of them said to me, listen, like, okay, you know what, you told all these stories, and some, it was great, inspiring. Sometimes I thought maybe it wasn't as great. But I use the same principles with my kids now in my business. For me, the legacy for me is not winning trophies and the team wins the trophies, not the coach. We've won a lot of trophies and we had a lot of losses as well. And that's life. And that's why in my book, I don't just want to write about most of the guys just write the great things they achieved and autobiography. I didn't believe in that. The legacy I want to leave is that this guy really, really try to make a difference in the country and also individuals. And I think that's the most important thing. At my grave and the legacy, it's not this is the great coach because... At every single funeral I've been at, they just tell how oh, great the guy is. And I know mostly it's false, sad, but it's false. I wanted a few guys sitting there and say, listen, this guy had a lot of mistakes. Obviously he learned from his mistakes, but he really tried to make a difference. And I think if there's more human beings going out there and try to make a difference and make the world a better place, I think it will be a great, great place. But you know, I'm proud South Africa and we've got a great country and not just South Africa, the world. And if we can work together, we can achieve great things. And, and that's what I stand for. For me, it's not about being in the limelight and being the successful coach and marketing myself. I really want to go out there and, and just make a difference in people's lives. And it's happened now. And maybe a story that I can share Bakis Bueta, which was an unbelievable tough character, still is. And I coach him since he was 18. I've chased him away from training when he didn't have work ethic. I was hard on his case. We had a lot of fights. And then in the 2007 World Cup, Every single player can give one Springbok jersey to the person that makes the most difference to his life. And obviously, most of the guys gave it to their parents. And there was only two guys that didn't give it to their parents. And Barky's respect his parents very much so. It's not because of no respect. He gave his jersey to me and said, Coach, you know what? I was a very tough guy. I was a bouncer. Tough. And you made the biggest mistake. And for me, that jersey is worth more than all the trophies we've won because I really know I made a difference and that's why I coach. So the legacy for me is really making a difference in in the lives of of the guys I've coached.
1: And it's been a privilege to spend some time with you today and listening to the many great stories you've had from your wonderful career. And I look forward to sharing this interview with a much wider audience so they can learn a little bit about you too. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, and again, you uh, you making a difference. That's what I really respect, people. So good luck with the podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, and hopefully today we can touch the heart of somebody to fight one more round because that's what i want to achieve with my book, and especially in COVID. Let's go out there and fight one more round. We're stronger than this. There's been much much worse epidemics in the in the past. We can get through this as as a nation and as and, and the whole world. Let's fight one more round. And thank you very much. It's, it's been a pleasure being on your show, The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to our discussion with Heineke Meyer. The key highlights for me were his view that as a head coach, you are only as good as your assistants and your leadership players. His coaching philosophy of treating players the way he wants other people to handle his own children. And he underpins this by saying you have to serve people and help them make their dreams come true and the great story he shared about Muhammad Ali to illustrate the importance of willing yourself forward to go one more round when the inevitable setbacks happen. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. In our next episode, we will be speaking to basketball coach, Jenny Bosek. My belief is if your definition of success is are things that are out of your control, such as your title, money you make, what people think about you, you're not gonna leave much of a legacy. You're gonna live a very emotionally unstable life. Your confidence is gonna waver constantly and your mental health is gonna suffer and ultimately your your performance and you reaching a very high level that's sustainable is is gonna be suspect. My definition of success, and I've learned this from being around some of the greatest of the greats and studying them is To become the best version of myself and understand my gifts, talents, passions, ability, experiences, pains, struggles, it is all for the purpose of giving back. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with the great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes.